like to have you turn, if you will, to John chapter 17. I normally do a Mother's Day message, but uh, I considered it uh, the importance of, of this message to all of us as believers in Jesus Christ to be uh, utmost uh, in our, our lives as we look to the day of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We've been in chapter 17 now a few weeks as we've been focusing our attention upon the prayer of Jesus to the Father in the presence of his disciples as he makes his way to the Garden of Gethsemane and eventually to the cross. I want to begin by reading verse verses 20 through 26, and we're going to look at verses 20 through 23. And then I'll explain a little bit about where we've been so far in this prayer. Now just consider this as Jesus praying unto the Father. And he says, neither pray I for these alone, which means that he's not just praying alone for those disciples who are in his presence, the 11. Remember, there were 11 with him that evening. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also, which shall believe on me through their word that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. And the glory which thou gavest me I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me, and has loved them as thou hast loved me. Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me. For thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world hath not known thee, but I have known thee, and these have known that thou hast sent me. And I have declared unto them thy name, and will declare it, that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them and I in them. As Jesus headed to the cross through the darkness of that solemn night, with his disciples hanging on every word he had continued to declare to them from the Passover supper on, he then stopped to pray what some call his high priestly prayer to the Father in their presence. We can actually call this the true Lord's Prayer. The content of his prayer, in a nutshell, affirmed his goals, the goals that Jesus came to fulfill, to be glorified by the Father's glory, that he might display his true divine nature. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. To bear the guilt and indignity of man's sins that the Father may be glorified on the cross, the object of suffering and shame, and yet becoming the symbol of hope to countless people in all ages and in every nation. In fact, the Apostle Paul would later provide an exceptional perspective to this symbol we call the cross, 
when he said in Galatians chapter 6, verse 14, but God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. Paul was saying, oh, that, that, that I should glory. If I glory in anything, I need to glory in the cross of our Lord. There's nothing in me, Paul is saying, there's nothing in my flesh that should glory. But it is the, in the cross by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. As believers in Jesus Christ, the world has to be crucified to us, which is death, and we to the world, dead to the world, alive in Christ and for Christ. So, Jesus continued. He continued to state his goals prayerfully. One of the goals was to give eternal life to as many as the Father has given him, so that they might know the only true God and the, and the Son whom he sent and to finish the work given him to do, to manifest God's glory and God's gifts, the gift of his disciples and the gift of his word that was given to his disciples for the purpose of manifesting God's grace in the world. So again, think of this goal that he achieved in coming to manifest God's glory, God's gifts, and God's grace in the world. But then he declared, his and their, the, the disciples, separation from the world. In effect, he's saying we are in the world, but we're not of the world. We're separate from the world now. And he declares that in this particular prayer. As he said in verse 16, they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them. Set them apart, Lord. This was his prayer for his disciples. It was also his prayer, and, and that very uh, verse 17, sanctify them through thy truth. That was the sanctification of his disciples in the world, setting them apart unto the gospel of Jesus Christ, unto the kingdom of God. And then he speaks of the, the satisfaction of his disciples, that they might have a, of a joy fill, a fulfilled in themselves because they serve the living God. We as believers in Jesus Christ should have a joy that is unspeakable and full of glory because we serve the risen Christ. Because we serve the God who created the heavens and the earth. And he prayed for their protection. He prayed for their purity as they fulfilled God's plan. And now in our text, Jesus is praying for all future believers of every generation. For all those who would believe on him from that moment on, even to the end of the world, which, by the way, includes us. It includes you. And it includes me. If you are indeed a believer in Jesus Christ, if you have indeed confessed Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you have indeed received him into your life, if you have indeed confessed with your mouth and believed in your heart that he's risen from the dead. So to read this prayer is to sense that what our Lord prayed is very precious. It is very personal. And it even becomes very pointed in some respects, as we shall see. So as we get back into the prayer, let's look at verse 20. And it says, neither pray I for these alone. Jesus is saying, 
I don't pray for these disciples here with me alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, through the word that is given through the disciples. So that phrase, through their word, simply means that the Lord was praying for those who would come to faith in him through the apostles preaching the message of the gospel, whether directly or indirectly. Now, the apostles have preached the message of the gospel, which touched a certain generation, touched certain people directly. They took that message, and from then on, it was indirectly. And it was going on and on and on until it got to us. And we're sitting here because they were faithful to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. They were faithful to preach the truth of the word of God. From Genesis to Revelation, as God was giving them the word through that time progressively, the Apostle Paul himself would write to his son in the faith Timothy and as well to Titus certain exhortations, one of which we find in 2 Timothy chapter 2 verses 1 and 2, where Paul says to Timothy, Thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And notice this next verse, and the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses. The same commit thou to faithful men. He's talking really about the word of God here. He says, the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the word of God, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. So there's the principle, there's the concept of taking the word and being faithful to minister the word and teach the word to others and continue to do it through all generations. When Paul speaks to Titus and he speaks of, of, of growing a, a leadership within the church, in Crete. In Titus chapter 1 verse 9, he speaks of those who would be elders in the church. He says, holding fast, they are to hold fast the word, the faithful word, notice, the faithful word as he has been taught that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers, which means that he may be able by sound doctrine and by the word of God to exhort others in the word of God and also to convince those that are not believers. So in his letter to the Romans, though, and I think most of us are more familiar with this, uh, the, Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul would write in Romans chapter 10, verses 12 through 15, these words. He says, for there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. <clears throat> Folks, when it comes to salvation, there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. There is no difference between the Jew and the Gentile. And don't forget that when the, the Bible makes it very clear that in this world today, there are only two classifications. You're either a Jew or you're a Gentile. That's just the bottom line. You know, man breaks it down into their own little categories, but, but God has made it very clear, we're either a Jew or a Gentile, all right? So he says, for there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek in this. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom thou, they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. So notice how Paul really comes actually from, from outside in, if you will, to say, you know, here, here it is. Well, how are they going to hear without a preacher? And how, you know, how are they going to preach if they're, they're not sent? So there is that need to take the word of God and continue to take that word until the Lord comes. There's no place where we have stopped doing that, except, and I hate to say it, except sometimes even in the church of Jesus Christ. 
where they put aside the Word of God for man's ideas and man's opinions and man's thoughts and man's philosophies and try to, you know, mix all of this with other religions as well. That's going on in the church today. I'll talk about that a little bit more in just a moment. But one thing is for sure, Jesus knew that his ministry in sending his disciples out to accomplish would be successfully fulfilled despite the world's attitude toward his word and those who cherish his word. Jesus knew that his word was going to accomplish what it would. He knew that. And the reason I know that and the way that we know that is that when he tells them, when, when, when he prays unto the Father as he does there in verse 20 about the way the word goes forth, He's doing so not as if to say to the Lord, I'm praying, Lord, because I don't know. These guys are really bad. These guys are dumb. Lord, you gave me three and a half years with these guys, and all I did was I have to correct them here and there and everywhere. Right? Is that, is that true? No, no, I'm, I'm exaggerating a little bit. They were good men. They were chosen by the Lord, right? God knew. They were human. Still God knew. Jesus knew they were going to accomplish what they would. He knew that they were going to take his word. After Pentecost, he knew what was going to happen. So this was not him saying, oh, Lord, please, these guys, oh, these guys you gave me. <laughs> no, look at us. The word has come to us. What are we doing with the word of God? Are we continuing to live it? Are we continuing to pass it on? Because that's what we need to be doing. I see commercials nowadays about passing on values. That's nice. But we in the Church of Jesus Christ know that there's something greater than the values of the world. It's the values of the Word of God. Because they're based upon the holiness of God and the goodness of God, and the goodness of Christ. So he knew that the Word was going to go forth. And he also knew that there was going to be opposition. Already the Lord had spoken of the world's hatred toward him and his own. You see, to this day, the world has not accepted the word of God and the true gospel of Jesus Christ. That very same word we are reading and cherishing today disproves every world religion, every worldly philosophy, while disregarding their wisdom. The, the, the worldly wisdom that are in the, the religions and philosophies of today are all disproved in the Word of God. Throughout Jesus' prayer, the world is pointed out as being antagonistic toward God the Father. Completely antagonistic. You know, it's, it's, it's worth repeating the words of, of John in 1 John 2, verses 15 through 17. I read these a lot, but I think I'm just trying to get this message across. He says, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, these are strong statements. These, these are not statements that you can actually water down. You can't water down what, Paul, what, what John is saying. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And there, John goes all the way back to Genesis chapter, uh, Genesis chapter 3 and the garden and the serpent and Eve and what the serpent said to Eve. Bring it about the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. 
And the world passes away in the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. And by the way, you know, this is what we see now happening that in many segments of the church of Jesus Christ, the world has infiltrated. The ideas of world philosophies and world religions have come into the church. And, and some of these pastors or ministers or whatever are, are, are saying, listen, we need to know what the, other, what the others are saying because there, there are probably some good things about Buddhism and there's probably some good things about Hinduism and there's probably some good things about Islam and all. And so they're bringing these people into their churches. The Word of God says, there's only one God and, and that's me. There's only one Savior and that's Jesus. There's only one power, and that's the power of the Holy Spirit, and the three are one. Well, in 1 John, I would be amiss if I didn't read to you what John says about Jesus dealing with a motivational ruler of the world, whether in world religion or world philosophy. The motivational ruler of the world is dealt with in 1 John 3, verse 8. Notice what it says. It's really the second part of the verse, but I'll read the whole verse. He that committeth sin, which means he that willfully commits sin constantly and continually, is of the devil. For the devil sinneth from the beginning. But notice this. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. So why are we bringing people into our churches that have the works of the devil in their religions or their philosophies? This boggles the mind, folks. Consider what is most precious about Jesus' prayer in verse 20. He's praying for you, and he's praying for me. He's praying for us then, as he does now, because the scripture says that he sits at the right hand of God, interceding on our behalf. But he prays there, not just for certain ones in the church. He prays from the weakest to the strongest. He prays for those diseased with sickness and for those that are healthy. He prays for the orphan as well as for the children of families. He prays for the prisoner and the free. He prays for the widow and the widower. He prays for the believer serving in the darkest part of the world to the believer that may at times be in the spotlight. But there is nothing more precious than the thought that our Lord and our Savior prayed for us all and is praying for us still. But Jesus prayed for much more for us. Consider, if you will, his prayer for unity. Now, do not consider unity as the world considers unity. But this is really a very significant and important issue, that the reason why we're doing this today. Jesus said that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me, and the glory which thou gavest me I have given them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. Now, as Jesus has assured us 
that there will be some who believe because of our witness. Just as many believe because of the witness of the disciples and the apostles. We need to make absolutely sure that our witness or testimony is true and is centered in Christ's love. That it is centered in Christ's love. Don't forget John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That very thought begins with that statement, for God so loved the world. Therefore, it must be a loving witness that you and I are to have in this world. It has been observed down through the ages that some professing Christians act more like prosecuting attorneys or judges instead of faithful witnesses, turning lost sinners away from rather than toward Jesus. May that never be the case with us. Now, it is understandable how the world sees a church divided against itself having been torn into factions, great and small, and that sadly from within in many cases. But I want to say, this is what the world sees. So understand what I'm saying here. I'm not saying these things to judge people or to judge organizations. What I am saying is pay attention as to how we saw it when we were in the world, how, we see, how, how the world today sees the church. And I've talked to, to you about this many times, about two distinctions of the church, in that there is a visible church and there is an invisible church. And I'll state that in just a moment. But here's, here's what the world sees. This is all I'm saying. This is what the world sees. They see Roman Catholic. They see Greek Orthodox. They see Coptic. In, in Egypt. They see the Anglicans in, in, in England. There, there, there are state churches in, in various nations. Then of course there are the Baptists and there are the Brethren. There are the Methodists and there are Mormons. Now I mentioned Mormons, why? Because the world sees that. And they think, well they've got to be Christians too. Isn't that part of their name, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints? So they, all they see is Jesus, that's all they see. So they say that's the church. Then they see the Pentecostals and they see the Presbyterians. They see the Congregationalists, they see the Charismatics. They see the Lutherans and they see the lunatics. The lunatic fringe of nonconformists. They see the Episcopalians and now they see the emerging church. Bringing up more questions, not, not bringing up answers, but questions. Is it any wonder that there are many skeptical and confused people when they think they're looking at the church, what they're looking at is the visible church, what is being seen out there. And what the world takes and does with that, for example, TV programs that, that, that uh, you know, always feature somebody maybe that's a, a quote-unquote Christian or whatever, they either were callers or, they were, or they're nuts. That's how they're portrayed. The invisible church is what God sees because it's what God knows about the hearts of everyone who is a part of the true body of Christ.
It is not arrogant to say there are true believers. It's not said in arrogance, it's said in humility that God would love us and fill us with his Holy Spirit when we know what we are. It's a humbling thing. So many of these mentioned in, in this list that I gave you, if not most, are divided obviously on doctrinal grounds. And we don't have time to deal with all of that today. So what was Jesus praying for? That's the question. What was he praying for? Listen again. That they all may be one. Verse 21. That they all may be one as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee. That they also may be one in us. That the world may believe that thou hast sent me. So it's critical then. This is a critical point. The imperative that, that absolutely must exist between believers. And the central theme of Jesus' prayer. Verse 11. I'll read them to you. Very quickly, Jesus said, And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to thee. Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. Verse 20, or verse 21, I should say. That they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee. That they also may be one in us. Verse 22, and the glory which thou gavest me I have given them, that they may be one even as we are one. Verse 23, I in them and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one. Four verses. The emphasis being that they may be one. But notice, as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they also may be one. So believers then, what Jesus is praying for, that believers will be one. But what is Jesus' standard for unity in this text? What is his standard for the unity that he's crying out to the Father for? Simply, it is the oneness. This is the standard. It is the oneness between Jesus and his Father. It is the oneness between Jesus and his Father. That's the standard here. Believers are to be one just as the Father and Jesus are one. The very same kind of unity they have is to be the unity existing between us. Is that thought not an eye-opener? I mean, if you're not awake now, you should be awake now. That Jesus said that they may be one, just like you, Father, and I are one. Wow. I, I can't wrap myself around that. Physically. <laughs> or mentally. Huh. Yeah, I'm a mental case when I think about that. We are to have the same kind of unity that Jesus and the Father have. We are to be Let's, let's just narrow it down for our understanding. We are to be one in nature, one in character, and one in purpose. As the Father and the Son are one in nature, character, and purpose. Think about that. Let's consider being one in nature together as brothers and sisters in Christ. That begins at the beginning. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23. 
where Peter uses a term that we are familiar with. Being born again, he says. Not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible. In other words, not of, of, of the seed of man, but of incorruptible, that of God himself. By the word of God, he says, which liveth and abideth forever. Being born again. Every believer, every true believer has to be born again. That is our new nature, you see. John says that in 1 John chapter 5, verse 1. He says, whosoever believeth that Yeshua, Jesus, is the Messiah, is born of God. Christ is Messiah. Whosoever believeth that Yeshua is the Messiah is born of God. We have to be born again if we are born of God. And everyone that loveth him that begat, loveth him also that is begotten of him. This again is the very nature of the believer in Jesus Christ. One who is born again, as we'll see in John chapter 3, but, <coughs> excuse me, but in John chapter 1, let's, let's, let's begin there for just a moment in verses 12 and 13, where it says, but as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. There's faith, that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh. In other words, not born physically, nor of the will of man, but of God. Born spiritually, this is being born again. So as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God who are born not of the flesh, but of the Spirit. The Spirit of God. The Word of God. This is why we can never separate the Word of God from the Spirit of God. <clears throat> because they're both essential to our walk as believers in Jesus Christ. We need to be united in this. We need to be one in this. Those who have been born again have been made into a new creature and a new man, a new person. 2 Corinthians 5.17, most of you are familiar with this verse, where Paul says, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. The wonderful thing about being a believer in Jesus Christ is that you are always new. In your spirit, in your walk, in your love for God and for Christ. You're new, always. These bodies will wear out, they get old. Why? Because we're subject to the world as it is. We're subject to the second law of thermodynamics. If you want to get scientific and technical, we're wearing away, but who we are in Christ, we're new. If you came to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior 50 years ago, you're still new. It's nice to be new. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 22 through 24. Paul says that you put off concerning the former conversation or the former conduct, the old man. Put him off, take him off like a just stinky old garment. You ever get home from workouts and stuff and you go in and go, whoosh, you know? Man, we take off that old garment right away, don't we? But you don't just put on a new garment over that body. Ooh. Go wash up. Are you here this morning? 
All right, good. I just want to make sure. You put off concerning the former conversation of the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Be made new, renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man. You put on like a garment a new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Paul to the Colossian church says in Colossians 3, 8 through 11, but now you also put off all these. In other words, take these things off, which means that these things were existing even in the church at the time of Paul. <clears throat> he says, put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy. Do you know that these are things that they do often in the world? But it isn't supposed to be in the church. It isn't supposed to be in the body of Christ. Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Man, this world has a filthy mouth today, doesn't it? We even hear it, those of you that are, that are uh, educators, you know, you hear it at, at school all the time, public schools, man. The, the kids, you know, they, they grow up, they hear this at home, you know, and it's filthy communication all around us. Can't even go see a good movie because, you know, you got to hear all, this, all, the, all the garbage, you know, going around. Filthy communication out of your mouth. Then it says, lie not one to another. Don't lie. Lie not one to another. Seeing that you have put off all the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man. You have put on the new man. You should have a closet full of new man clothes. And by the way, if you are walking daily in the new person that you are in Christ, you never have to take off the, because it's always new. You've put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image. Notice this, after the image of him that created him. Where there is neither Greek nor Jew. There it is again. No Gentile, nor Jew, circumcision or uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond or free, but Christ is all and in all. As believers who are born again of the Spirit of God, we have become partakers of the divine nature. Please understand, I am not saying that you have become divine. You're not little gods. There are people who teach that. It's heresy. We're not little gods. The Bible's very clear. If you read all of the scriptures, it's very clear. They misinterpret the usage of Elohim in the Old Testament and created a doctrine that is, that is wrong. God says, there's only one God, one Lord. But we have become partakers of the divine nature. Second Peter chapter one, verses three and four says, according as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. Praise the Lord. God has blessed us with those things through the knowledge of him that has called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature. Because the sinful nature was really stinky. So you become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. You've escaped it. You've become partakers of that which is divine, that which is good. God has blessed us with that. That is to be our nature now. 
So as born-again believers, our new nature also makes us members of God's new body of people. This is also new. Ephesians 2 verse 16 says, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body. He's speaking again of Jew and Gentile. Reconcile both into one body by the cross, having slain the enmity or the hostility thereby. Whatever hostility there was between Jew and Gentile is completely destroyed because of the cross of Jesus Christ. So we've become members of one body. We are members of a new nation and a new family. Ephesians 2 verses, uh, verse 19, just go down a few verses. Verse 19, now therefore are you no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints. Notice that, fellow citizens with the saints, that makes us members of a new nation and of the household of God, that makes us members of a new family. So, we're members of a new nation, new family, we're also members of a new building. Before we were members of a decrepit building, building that was falling apart. It was a building that was condemned, wasn't it? But Ephesians 2, we're still in Ephesians 2, verses 20 through 22 says, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Now l listen to the words that Paul uses, foundation. That's, that's, uh, that's technical when it comes to building. You need a foundation for building. The foundation of the apostles and prophets, which is of course the word of God, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Every good foundation needs a chief cornerstone in whom all the building, he calls us, fitly framed together, growth unto a holy temple in the Lord. So that's the building we're built into, the temple of the Lord, in whom you also are built together, notice, for a habitation of God through the Spirit. So we become the temple so that we might be uh, the house or the dwelling place of God as the body of Christ. So when you put all of this together, a believer is to live and to walk in unity with other believers. Now let me just say real quickly here that we're going to talk a little bit more about this next time, dealing with a little bit more of the specifics when it comes to certain things that, that, that uh, you know, that that are taught in the Word of God, that we sometimes disagree in. We'll talk about that a little bit more. The, the important thing is that we walk in unity with other believers because we have been born again of the Spirit of God and we're united in the nature of, of God. So they are not to, uh, we're not to allow the divisive spirit of the world to infiltrate our lives as believers in Jesus Christ. Think about this. What is happening in some churches today? Grumbling and griping and complaining and criticizing and envying and gossiping and opposing and overlooking and ignoring, ignoring and isolating. This happens sometimes even in the church. And it should not happen. I don't want those things to happen in this body. But sometimes they do because the flesh gets in the way. We can't let that happen. We need to come back to the nature that God has given us to share. We are to be one as the Father and Jesus are one. Believers are also to be one in character. We're to be godly. We're to be holy. We're to be denying the works of the flesh and living pure lives even as, as Jesus and his Father are one in, the life, in their life and being. And there's one major word here. The word is holy. Think about John 17, 11. I quoted it earlier, but there's one word there that Jesus refers to his Father by. And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to thee, Holy Father. 
Holy Father. I said when we looked at that passage a few weeks ago that there's only one person who can be called Holy Father, and he's not on this earth. It's our Father in heaven. He's Holy Father. Keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. Consider what Paul writes to Titus in Titus 2, verses 11 through 14, because he, he emphasizes this aspect. He says, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation has appeared to all men. Now remember, we're dealing with character here. This is character now. Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity, notice, and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. Denying ungodliness, worldly lusts, living soberly and righteously and godly. But Peter, in 1 Peter 1, verses 15 and 16, quotes actually from the book of Leviticus, and he says to the church, this is what we need to do. Peter says, but as he which has called you is holy, so be ye holy, sanctified, set apart, set apart for God, set apart away from the world. Be ye holy in all manner of conversation, which means in all manner of conduct, because it is written, be ye holy, for I am holy. Oh, Peter, that's the Old Testament. No, that's the word of God. That's the word of God. Be set apart from the world, be set apart unto Jesus Christ. And lastly, believers are to be one in purpose. One in purpose. We are to surrender and we are to give all we are, all we have, to minister, to serve, to proclaim the message of salvation to a lost and dying world. Let's never forget that that that's part of our purpose as believers in Jesus Christ. A world that is spinning out of control and in desperate need. We're still here, folks. Jesus is coming, but we're still here. What are we doing until he comes? Listen to what Jesus said to his disciples after he uh, arose from the dead. John 20, verse 21, Jesus said again, Peace be unto you. As my Father has sent me, even so send I you. As my Father has sent me, even so send I you. And that fits into our concept and our principle of what? Of keeping the word going forth, bringing life where there's only death bringing light when there's only darkness, bringing the love of God where there's only despair. In 2 Corinthians 5, verses 20 and 21, Paul talks about us as being ambassadors for Christ. He says, now, 
then we are ambassadors for Christ. We represent Christ and the kingdom of God. We are ambassadors for Christ as though God did beseech you by us. In other words, he spoke to you through us. And we pray you in Christ's stead, be you reconciled to God. For he has made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That is part of our purpose, to be ambassadors for Jesus Christ, representing the kingdom of God to those in the world who need to realize that there can be a change made from nation to kingdom, from the nations of the world, the heathen nations of the world, to the kingdom of Almighty God. Matthew 20, verses 25 through 28. Remember this particular point. By the way, the, the setup to this is the fact that uh, James and John brought uh, Mama. It's Mother's Day, so you know they brought Mom along uh, with Jesus uh, to, to have her lobby for her sons that they would sit on the left and right hand of Jesus in the kingdom. And did you, do you think that the other disciples were real happy about that? No, I think they really wanted to beat him up. They want to take him behind, you know, some, some shed or something and just pounce on him, you know. Hopefully after mother left, you know. They were angry. I mean, you can read the text. But in verse 25, with all of that going on, Jesus called them unto him and he said, You know that the princes of the Gentiles exercise dominion over them, and they that are great exercise authority upon them. But it shall not be so among you. But whosoever will be great among you, let him be your minister, let him be your servant. And whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant, your minister. Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. You see, the world divides itself through prejudice, through competitiveness, through lust and selfishness, through egotism and angry spirits, possessiveness and pride, self-praise, hatred, hurt, and war. That's the world that we came out of. That's the world that still exists around us. But let us not divide ourselves in a similar manner. In fact, this is never to be our manner whatsoever. If we are united in one thing, we need to be united in the nature of God that he's given us through Christ. The character that is different than the character that we had in the world. And let's be united in the purpose of being light to the world and salt to the earth. I leave you with Ephesians 4. Now, I know that we read some of this earlier, but now I'm going to bring it, expand it a little bit as we close. This I say, therefore, Paul says in verse 17, and testify in the Lord that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk. Now, remember that much of the church in Ephesus was made up of, of uh, Gentiles who came to Christ. So he speaks to them, don't, don't, don't walk like other Gentiles walk 
in the vanity of their mind, thinking more highly of themselves. The problem with thinking highly of ourselves is that we become vain, and in being vain, we become worthless to the kingdom of God. So he says, in the vanity of your mind, he says, having the, uh, the, the understanding dark and being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over unto lasciviousness, which deals with, with, with great sexual sins and, 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 and lusts, to work all uncleanness with greediness. But you have not so learned Christ. If you under, underline anything in your Bible, underline that phrase. But you have not so learned Christ. If so be that you have heard him and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning the former conversation the old man, which is corrupt, according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man, which is after God, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Can we be one in those things today? Beginning here in this place and in this church. May we be one in nature and in character and in purpose. There's much more that needs to be said about this, which we will do next time. But I pray that this has been more than just informative, I pray that it has been encouraging, exhorting, and maybe even admonishing. Whatever it is, I pray that it will stir your hearts to die to self and let Christ live in you, who is our hope in glory.